I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Job. The book of Job. I want you to turn to the book of Job. Job's in the Old Testament. It's in the wisdom literature right after Esther and Nehemiah. Then comes Job. It's before Psalms. And turn or click or tap to Job. If you don't have the Bible, uh, download the Bible app. Get it open tonight. We're going to be in the Word. I want you to be with me in it. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Job, but I've been reading it for the last couple weeks, working through it. Let me fill you in on a little bit of the background. Tragedy that we can't even really begin to relate to befalls Job. It passes through the hand of God, but it's brought about by Satan. Satan himself brings us about seeking permission from God. Job loses pretty much everything that's precious to him. Loses his kid, all of his kids. Loses his livestock, his farm, his possessions. Finally, he even loses his own health. He loses everything but just about his sanity and his trust in God. Job's lamenting, understandably so. But his lament isn't helped by three friends who circle around him. I think it's for seven days his friends don't say a thing. And after seven days, they speak up, and that's where things go bad. His friends, his three friends, are trying to comfort him, but they try and comfort him by figuring out his problem. Trouble is, they don't know about the divine dilemma going on in heaven with Satan and God, so they're trying to find fault. And they're really trying to find fault that's not there. See, Job's not perfect, but he is blameless in this sense. His tragedy, his dilemma, his difficulty is not brought about by his own sin. And so it's during this back and forth session in Job, in his frustration, in his understandable lament, that Job says some rather brash things. What do I mean? Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, in this back and forth argument, he's gotten heated and he's even accused God of some things. And then he says in verse 21, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Or if you're reading the NASB, oh, that a man might plead with God as a man does with his neighbor. Job was asserting not his sinless perfection, but his integrity relative to the tragedy. And now he wants this. He wants a hearing with God. He wants to plead with God as a man does in a courtroom. He wants to say, this isn't fair. Let me plead with God as man does with his neighbor. Well, Job would get his chance. For better or for worse, he would get his chance. Look at chapter 38 with me. Chapter 38. Let's talk with the three friends. And then a fourth one comes in. Is finally broken by this. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God, the Lord Yahweh, has been silent up until this. He hasn't said anything out loud. He hasn't confronted Job or any of his friends yet. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And look at what he says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loids like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that's the angels, shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed the boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. I've written in my Bible, though I know God's not talking directly to me. He's talking to Job. Were you there? No, Lord, I wasn't there. What a striking thing when God confronts Job out of the whirlwind. Job, was you, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? When I told the waves this far, no further. When I set things up, were you there? Job wasn't. No, Lord. God continues till chapter 40. Flip over to chapter 40 where we see another interlude. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job shouldn't have spoke up in the first place because the interaction continues. Verse 6, The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. Dress for action, he says. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Does that sound familiar? For another chapter this goes on. For another two chapters. All the way to chapter 42. Finally, in chapter 42, look at this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I declare that that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. Job repeats God's phrases back to him. Let God know. I get it now. I understand. And then he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job says, oh, that a man might plead with God as a man pleads with his neighbor. Job got his chance, but it was way more than he bargained for. This courtroom scene points to the utter inability of man to argue his case before the Lord Yahweh. Utter inability and hopelessness. I want you to understand this, that Job was probably the first book written in the Bible. Obviously, it comes after Genesis 1 through 3, but it happens in Genesis. The book of Job was probably written even before Genesis. This helps us understand that the desire, more than that, the need of someone to plead for man from the beginning was acknowledged, but it was unmet. It was understood, but it was unmet. 
Well, last week we made an important transition in the semester. We went from talking about the person of Christ to the work of Christ. That is to say who he is to what he has done and what he's doing. Dante taught last week, did a tremendous job on talking about the past work of Christ. You remember he talked about his atonement and his propitiation for us. This week, we'll talk about his present work. That is his advocacy for his people. That is to say what is happening even as we study tonight. I want you to go from Job all the way to the New Testament to the book of 1 John. It's almost easier to go to Revelation and then look at Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Go all the way to 1 John chapter 1. It's our text that we're going to spend our time in and camp in tonight. I want you to see it with your own eyes. I want to help us understand this. I want this to impact our heart. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1 starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things, or I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pause to pray. Lord, your word is full and rich and robust with meaning. Help us to understand it this evening. Help us to digest it, to understand it, to take it in, to wrestle with it on our own souls. Grant me grace, a pitiful creature, as I try to preach it, to exclaim it. Pray that you'd continue to help it impact my heart, that you'd help it to impact the hearts of all here. Lord, help us to not be hearers merely, deceiving ourselves, but doers. We pray and ask this together through the precious name of your Son. Amen. Verse 8 says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know this, sin is a deceptive thing. It's deceptive enough to allow someone to even say, if you can believe this, that they don't have any sin. You can probably believe it because you've heard somebody say it. This is more, this text is talking about much more than merely admitting imperfection or saying, well, everyone makes mistakes. We've heard that a lot, haven't we? No, it goes so much deeper than that. In fact, it reminds me of a conversation that I had, I believe it was last summer down at Music on Main. Anybody ever been to Music on Main? It's downtown. I think it is a Thursday nights. Yeah. You're all like not wanting to admit that you were there because you're afraid. Is Tanner going to judge me if I was at Music on Main? I won't. I didn't even look at who raised their hands. I was down there and I was talking to some people about the Lord, just visiting with different people about the Lord who were around. I got in a really neat conversation uh, with some high school students who were really receptive, asking questions. We were interacting about the gospel and who Jesus was. And so we talked more and more, came around, and eventually we got to the subject of sin. And I began to talk about sin, and I could see that one of the people there was beginning to get uncomfortable. 
The interesting thing about it was this person was the professing believer in the group. As I brought up sin, he said this, well, everyone's a sinner. Is he right? Absolutely. But I tried to help that young man understand that we should take no comfort in numbers. We should take no comfort in the severity of one sins versus another sin. If we've broken the law at one point, we're guilty of it all. <clears throat> tried to help him understand that sin is a little bit like cancer. No one would say, well, you know, we've all just got cancer, no big deal. Sin is a big deal. Sin is a virus, a cancer even. We don't take comfort in numbers and we don't take comfort in levels of sin. When people ask, you, you remember this, Jesus is teaching in the Gospels and some people come to him and uh, they tell him about a tragedy that's happened where Herod slaughtered a bunch of people at the temple who were sacrificing and Herod basically sacrificed them, he slaughtered them. And the people ask Jesus, they say, were these worse sinners than others? Or were these worse sinners than a different group of people? Remember what Jesus says? He says, no, but I tell you this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no comfort in levels of sin. There's no comfort in numbers in sin. Sin's mortality rate, unlike cancer's, last time I checked, was 100%. Cancer's consequences, difficult as they are, I don't mean to downplay it for one bit, they stop when we die physically. Listen to me when I say sin's consequences galvanize when you die. They become concrete and permanent when you die. Sin is cosmic treason against the Lord of the universe. Such a big deal that if you deny that you have sin, John says the truth is not in you. What is he saying? He says that if you don't have the truth in you, John's saying you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. Uh, John is a book, 1 John is a book about how to know if you're in the light or out of the light. How to know if you're walking in darkness or in light. How to know, let me say it this way, if you're a Christian or not a Christian. This is John's way of saying, if you deny sin, you're not a Christian. Who can say, Proverbs 20 verse 9, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man and is able to bridle his whole body. No perfect men, no perfect women. We are all in it together. But let me remind you again, because we're all in this sin together, it shouldn't bring comfort to our souls. It should bring terror. The Bible affirms this doctrine incessantly. Talks about it again and again and again. And I'm grateful it does. God wants us to know that there's a sin problem. A corruption at the very core of our being. As Monty Casebolt would say, rotten to the core and the core is rotten. No good in us. But listen to me when I say that when someone admits, when someone recognizes, when someone comes to terms with their sin, then they can confess their sin. They can confess their sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is characteristic of true believers to confess their sins. 
Confession is the word homologeo. Why do I tell you that? Well, because I want you to do some reasoning here. Homa, same as, same as saying. It's the same saying. It's to say the same thing as. Confession is this, to agree with God about our sin. It's to say the same thing about our sin that God says. Acknowledging not only its presence, but its wickedness. Yes, that it's a very violation of the perfect law of God. I want you to observe something else about this verse with me. This verse is a statement of fact, not a command. Did you catch that? This verse is a statement of fact, not a command. Why is that significant? Well, because John's letter, it gives, it gives assurance to those stuck in doubt. John's letter, if you look over in chapter 5, you'll see this. You can do it on your own. He writes so that people can know that they know him. He wants people to know for sure that they can know Jesus. And uh, to do so, he's being very concrete. He's being very dogmatic in the characteristics of those who are believers and those who aren't believers. Those who are believers and those who are pretenders. Uh, Christians aren't those who never sin. Christians are those who know their sin. And when they know their sin, they're moved by a penitent heart to confess their sin. Let me say it this way, and you can write this one down. Christians are confessors. Christians are confessors. Christians are people who recognize the atrocity that they've had against God and they confess their sin. They don't just sit and wallow in it. They bring it before the throne of God and confess their sin. Psalm 32, 5, we see a model here. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you will forgive the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Selah. Pause for reflection. Think about what is da- David is saying. David is saying this after the atrocity of his sin with Bathsheba. He slept with another man's wife. He got her pregnant. He tried to cover it up. He got a man drunk. When he couldn't cover it up, he got the man killed. And then, to look like a hero, he married the man's wife. Sin after sin after sin at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11 said God was not pleased. David says, after all that, I confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a wonderful thing. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you want mercy? Confess, forsake your sin. I want you to also understand about this verse, the permanence of sins forgiven. The permanence of sins forgiven. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as you know this, the what? The east is from the, say it, west. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's not like God sets it to the side and then lumps it back on us when we mess up again. No, the cleansing of unrighteousness, you see what the verse says? It's permanent. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. The forgiveness offered is irrevocable. Psalm 32, 1, David again, blessed is the one, he could say this, he knew, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And by the way, I'd want to clear this up by adding that John is not teaching that we're only forgiven for the sins that we remember to confess. 
Sometimes our consciences aren't sensitive enough. Sometimes we don't see and understand sin in our lives. We're not forgiven merely for the ones we remember to confess. That doesn't mean at all that we're forever out of fellowship with God. Some people teach this. Some people understand the Bible this way. I'm walking along, doing pretty good. Sin. Broken fellowship with God for all of eternity. Now I need to get re-saved. Once you understand it's not that way at all. The idea here is an attitude, get this, as much as an action. The idea here is an attitude as much as it is an action, an attitude of penitence, an attitude about sin that leads to humility and brokenness such that you bring it before the Lord in confession. Turn with me over to John 13. We're looking at the same author, but his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book in the New Testament. Go to chapter 13. I just want to demonstrate this to you. This is probably the clearest and best object lesson of this that I could help you understand, that I could go to for my own heart. It's the final night before Christ would face death on a cross, before he would face the holy and righteous anger and wrath of his Father, and he's with the 12 disciples in the upper room. We'll pick it up in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I want you to remember this setting. If you've seen the pictures where they're all sitting around a big table and eating together, toss that out the door. (laughs) It's not what happened at all. These uh, disciples are sitting around the table, rather they're laying around the table with their dirty feet in each other's face. And they're reclining next to each other. Remember the picture I laid out a few weeks ago when John was reclining in the bosom of Jesus? They're reclining right next to each other. It's the same setting. And they have dirty, disgusting feet. And do you see what Jesus does? Knowing everything, understanding what's about to happen, he girds himself with a towel In verse 5, he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash, get this, the disciples' feet and to wash them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He humbly went around and think about what he did. He even washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the humility of Jesus? Can you imagine what was going through Judas' mind? He washes their feet. In verse 6, he comes around to Simon Peter. He says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter needed his feet washed like anyone else. Jerusalem at this time and the surrounding city would have made their feet very dirty, disgusting. Washing feet, though, was a duty that even the lowest slave didn't have to do. And so Jesus, Peter rather says to Jesus, Jesus, you're going to wash my feet You've got to appreciate this a little out of Peter, don't you? He recognizes Jesus as his master and what's going on here. Anyone but Christ should have been doing this. Peter gets that, but Jesus answers in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. <laughs> he did. That's what the text says, if you can believe it. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said this in about as strong of language as he possibly could. Double negative. No, never. No way, not a chance you're washing my feet, Jesus. Can you believe it? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, 
but my hands and my head. If you're going to wash me, wash all of me. I'm a mess. But look what Jesus says, verse 10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus is not obviously talking here about physical cleanliness. If I didn't wash ever and I only washed my feet, my wife would not be happy with me at all. She would not kiss me and snuggle with me. She would say, go wash yourself. That's why we keep the chairs far enough apart here because we recognize not everyone comes here washed. Not physical cleanliness. Jesus is talking about spiritual cleanliness. He's obviously talking about Judas when he says, not all of you are clean. Christ is teaching, though, get this, an incredibly important lesson here. Once your body and soul is washed, it's clean. It's clean forever. That's conversion. That's the washing and rebirth and renewal that the Holy Spirit brings about, Titus 3.5. You don't need another bath. But listen, you will get your feet dirty walking through life. And you'll need them washed. John heard this interaction and recorded it. He remembered it. Some 30 years later, 40, 50 years later even, John heard this illustration, saw this illustration, heard this interaction, and it's exactly what he's alluding to here. It's exactly what he's helping put down in text here in verse 9. Go back to 1 John. Christ gave us an incredible illustration. Once you've been cleansed from unrighteousness, you don't need to be cleaned again. You only need to have your feet washed. Our text says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just because the punishment has already been made and taken. The death has already been put on Christ. In fact, this verse uh, assumes that you and I understand, I think, Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. Let me read it to you. Whom Jesus... uh, Paul is talking about Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. This is what Deontay talked about last week, to be received by faith. This was to show or to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or his patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show or demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That's after Jesus rose from the dead so that he might be both just and what? The justifier of he who has faith in Jesus. You see what happened? God poured his holy and righteous anger out on Jesus in his justice so that he could also be the one who justifies. God's wrath, though, did not conquer his mercy. Neither his grace overwhelm his justice. No, the two met and kissed in perfect harmony. Both worked together in salvation. Jesus, his death, provided satisfaction for the justice of God. That's what this text is telling us. That's why he can wipe away our sin. That's why he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 10 is more than just a restatement of verse 8. We're going from we have no sin. Now look at verse 10. We have not sinned. It's even more blatant and defiant than verse 8 is. We're going from being a liar, verse 8, to making God a liar, verse 10. Three times in our text here tonight, we have this, if we say, if we say, three if we say claims in John 1. Verse 6, if we're saying we walk in the light, but living in sin, we lie. 
Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we say we haven't sinned, we make God to be a liar. And that, friends, listen to me, is blasphemy. This is serious. The words proclaimed by God, the plain statements in Scripture, have no place in the life of one who is this proud. The one who is so arrogant to say, I have not sinned. Text says the word has no place in their life. And John 5, 38 says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You say you have no sin. It's equal to saying that you don't believe in Jesus. You're not a Christian if you deny sin. It's how proud people live in this state. Remember one time I was in a coffee shop close to campus meeting with a believer. And I spied out of the corner of my eye another person who'd been to Crossleft just recently. And uh, they were pretty new, and I knew a little bit of their background. So after I got done with my conversation, I went over and talked to them. And right as I did, they were sitting and talking and interacting with a gal. And as I sat, or not sat, as I stood and just said hi, instantly there was a verbal assault that caught the attention of the whole coffee shop. It was so weird. I was standing there. I think it was International Coffee. If you've ever been there, you know, kind of up on the little high part. And, uh, you know, coffee shops are kind of sober and everyone's doing their thing, got their buds in. And this lady, this girl starts going off on me. (laughs) And I'm like, I've never met you before. I thought, why is she doing this? But the reason became pretty clear. This young man had told this gal what I believed. And she believed in perfection, a sinless state. And she was proud and arrogant and began to rail. I'm not making this a pity party at all about me. I just want you to see every time I've interacted with someone who believes in perfectionism, who believes they're without sin, this is always their attitude. Never is it humble gratitude towards Christ. Never is it this humble submission to the Lord and Savior. Every time it's this this outburst, this violence, this almost profanity, this blasphemy against God. It's a dangerous doctrine. And listen, this isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. I tell you that illustration because it happens today. This guy who goes around, he's preached in all 50 states on campuses now. His name is Brother Jed Smock. I'm not talking about the street preachers who were here last week or two weeks ago. I'm talking about guys and people who follow this guy who preach sinlessness, who preach perfectionism. But Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Job 15.14, What is man that he can be pure? Or the one born of a woman that he can be righteous? None are sinless. And if you assert this in pride, you make God a liar and you make his word a liar. But let God be found true and every man a liar. God lies not. Only liar and deceiver is Satan and those that follow him. This verse should shut all of our mouths lest we become self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-confident, or jacked up on self-esteem. Lord, spare us from this and grant us the kind of humility that we would recognize our sin, that this would never be us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. First thing I want to alert you to in this verse is this. 
Paul's affectionate tone. See what he says, first three words, my little children. What a phrase. (laughs) Seemingly unnecessary to the flow of his argument, except perhaps that he's transitioning from talking about false teachers and those who blaspheme and deny God to those who deal with their sin, to those whom his heart is warmed as believers. What a statement, my little children. Look at verse one. He could have just left it out. He could have said, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Paul loves his people, or John loves his people. His heart is warm towards them, even thinking about them. His affectionate tone. He uses the phrase, get this, six times in his epistle. In this one alone, my little children. John's not writing with a wedge to drive. He's writing with a balm to heal. He wants to help these believers. He wants to feed them, to teach them, to love them. And listen, you and I can all learn from John's compassion, yet uncompromising tone on such a serious subject. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To talk about the seriousness of sin, to talk about false teachers and blasphemy, and yet to teach and love believers. We'd all do well to learn from John here. John nonetheless affirms that mercy and forgiveness of God, look at verse 1 again, should compel us to obedience, not to sin. He says, just because the grace of God is, just because he forgives us, I want you to understand, I write these things to you, not so you can abuse that grace, but so that you will not sin. Might remind your mind, might remind your heart of Romans 6, verse 1. I'll read it to you. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. Strongest negative possible. May it never be. May it never happen. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He spends verse 3 through 5 talking about that death that we've died to sin. The life that we've lived in Christ. And he says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen to me and look at me when I say this. You don't have to sin. Do you know that? You've been set free from the power of sin. You haven't been set free from the presence of sin. But if you're a believer here tonight, you've been set free from the power of sin. You don't have to sin. You shouldn't sin. Sin displeases God and it brings chastisement. It brings discipline from our loving Father. You might remember John 8, the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus stands up after he's kneeled down. He says, where'd everyone go? No one's going to condemn you, woman. Verse 11, she says this. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Grace abounds, but sin therefore should not abound. John writes these things so that we will not sin. In the language, we can understand with some study that this is what's called a third-class conditional statement. A third-class conditional statement. That's a statement of probability. It's, it's, you could uh, almost say, but if anyone does sin, and they will sin, But John wants to be careful. He's treating this carefully. He doesn't want to give the wrong perspective, which is why he doesn't say when we sin. He says, I don't want you to sin. But it's phrased in such a way that he knows. He understands that we will sin. After all, 
you don't have to sin, you shouldn't sin, but John's probably about 70, upper 70s, 80 years old when he's writing this, and he recognizes by now, you're going to (laughs) sin. You don't have to live to 80 to be that, but John knows well now that we will sin. Sin is a reality. Sin happens. I don't say that in a flippant way. I don't say that in a passive way. I say this, I read this, so that we will not sin. But listen, when you do sin, here's the extravagant news. You ready for this? You have an advocate. You have an advocate with the Father. You have one who is called alongside to help. You have one who appears on behalf of you. You have a defender. You have an intercessor. The word appears in a legal, even in a technical sense here, in a judicial sense. You have one called alongside. The word is parakletos. You might have heard it before. It's a very important term. and It appears a lot in extra-biblical literature at the time. The only author who ever uses it is the author John. He uses it about five or six times. And it's a key term. It means one who appears on another's behalf. You might remember John 14, 16. Remember what Jesus says here? I will ask the Father and he will give you another what? Helper. It's the word uh, parakletos, another helper, to be with you forever. Who's he talking about there? Holy Spirit, that's right. He's going to give another helper, a helper of a different kind to come alongside and help. There is one who gives protection, help, security, comfort, and counsel. Here it's more of a judicial view. It's an advocate, one who stands in our place and advocates for us. If you read 1 John, I remember when I was your age reading 1 John in college, I can remember sitting on a couch in a house and how life-changing studying 1 John was for me. Uh, 1 John is rigid. It has rigidity in its statements, unbending statements. It's really a breathtaking letter, not really in the sense of an inspiring way, but in a sobering way. You read through 1 John, if if you're not careful interpretation, you just feel like, well, I'm not getting into heaven. (laughs) I guess no one's getting into heaven because I don't do this perfectly. I don't walk perfectly in the light. That's not the idea that John is giving off. And he puts in there verses like this, breathtaking scriptures like this. Listen, this scripture, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, is intended as an encouragement, as a healing balm, as a breath of fresh air to our soul. Let me read to you from a book that a friend passed on to me earlier this week. It's called Jesus Christ, Our Advocate. It's by author John Bunyan. A very old writer, he says this, Faith and hope are very apt to faint when our sins and their guilt do return upon us. Nor is there any more proper way to relieve our souls than to understand that the Son of God is our advocate in heaven. You want relief for your soul? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he is your intercessor, that he is your advocate in heaven. Far from giving us license to sin, this scripture, this idea, remembering Christ as our advocate, it strengthens, it builds up our hope and our faith. Isn't this true? Isn't this true? God is for us. We have an advocate. Let me test this hypothesis by reading some scripture to you. Let's see what it does to our souls. Hebrews chapter 7 
verse 25 and 26. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is completely or internally. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, get this, lives to make intercession for them. Only two chapters later, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not in the holy places made with hands, not temporary ones, not, uh, not ones made by hands of people. Copies of the true things, only models and shadows of what's to come. Doesn't enter into there, but into heaven itself. Now to appear where? In the presence of God. On whose behalf? On our behalf. You get this? You understand the picture? Christ appears before the presence of God. Why? To advocate on our behalf. The high priest of the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrificial systems, they're only shadows. They didn't atone. And they certainly didn't cause or bring about the kind of advocacy that our souls were made for. Listen, if you know, if you understand a fraction Listen to me of the hideousness of your sin and the blessing that it is to have an advocate. It will bring relief to your souls and replace ashes with beauty. Christ, our advocate. Don't you see what, listen, whatever your test scores, whatever your family projects, whatever your difficulties, whatever your health problems, whatever your biggest trial is, whatever your biggest difficulty is, if you're a Christian, your biggest quandary has been solved. It's been finished. It's been sealed. And even now, Christ intercedes on your behalf at the throne of God in heaven. All other problems pale in comparison, our advocate. Let's paint and understand before we close the judicial scene, a scene in heaven. God the Father is the judge, and he is a formidable judge. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, who's that? God, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. God's a formidable judge, a fearful judge. We should appear before him with fear and trembling if we're outside of Christ. And we also have a prosecuting attorney. A prosecutor enters the scene. His name is none other than Satan. And who is on trial? Every person that ever lived. Revelation 12, 10 talks about a future event, but refers uh, to something that is happening now. It says the accuser of our brethren, that Satan has been thrown down, who, get this, accuses them day and night before God. You know what's going on? Satan says to God, can you believe this? Really? That one? You see what he did? That's the court scene. The question is, how can an unholy people be justified before a holy God? Read what R.C. Sproul says. The doctrine of justification involves a legal matter 
of the highest magnitude. It involves a matter of judgment before the supreme tribunal of God. The most basic of all issues we face as fallen human beings is the issue of how we, as unjust sinners, can hope to survive a judgment before the court of an absolutely holy and absolutely just God. God is the judge of all the earth. Herein lies our dilemma. He is just. We are unjust. If we receive from his hands what justice is due us, we face his everlasting punishment in hell. There's one more character to consider. The risen Lord Jesus. He acts as our advocate. He acts as our defense attorney. He is different, however, for most defense attorneys in this. He doesn't plead his client's innocence. He doesn't plead his client's sinlessness. Listen, think about this. Everyone in the courtroom understands perfectly what's happening, and they understand perfectly your sin. Jesus doesn't plead your innocence. Rather, he acknowledges our guilt. But who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Romans 8:33. It is God who justifies. God the Father appointed our defender. So don't get the imagery mixed up here. It's not God the Son and God the Father kind of pitted against each other. No, God the Father put God the Son in the place as our advocate. Romans 3, Romans 8.34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, you guessed it, interceding for us. This, allow, this reality, get this, allows Christians to relate to God the Father, not as a judge, but as just that, a father. A father. This, beloved, is the unfinished work of Christ. This, beloved, continues even to this very moment. Jesus, he, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only but for the sins of the whole world. Listen, Christ pleads, he advocates on our behalf, in this case, on the basis not of us, but because of his propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction rendered to God on our behalf. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, this is the unfinished work of Christ. Christ our advocate. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor, says Job. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5. We have no ability to intercede for ourselves. Job found that out the hard way. And listen, this should be of most supreme comfort to those of you who are in Christ. This should be of most supreme comfort. We make poor advocates because we have nothing to bring to the table. We might say it this way, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Christians, the unfinished work of Christ. If you've repented and trusted in Christ, your sins are entirely taken care of. You should have the utmost confidence in your advocate, the unfinished, the ongoing work of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, what a God you are. (laughs) 
where could we even begin to thank you? How could we even begin to give gratitude? In your kindness, in your divine providence, setting this up the way it is, we thank you, Lord, that we have an advocate. What a pitiful and, and wicked people we are, we have been. We're not free from sin, not in the sense of it being on our record, not in the sense of it being in our past, but we're free in this sense that you paid for that sin, that you've covered that sin with the blood of Christ. We thank you that it's for this reason that Christ has never lost a case. The gavel's already been swung. You've declared us, those who have repented and believed in you, just because of Christ. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us, our hearts, our affections, our minds, to be stirred up and to be warmed this evening. We pray and ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.